my presumption is that it was already clear that attorneys don't owe you shit. But apparently people just don't get it. People just don't get it. I was having a conversation today which made it very clear, made me realize people don't get it. Well, the outline and summary of this, one, an attorney owes you nothing. Two, the moment you hire them, you become their ward. And they're not bound to listen to anything you say. A king is not subject to listen to its subject. Simple as that. Three, the moment you hire them, the only thing that they're liable to do to you, for you, the burden they have regarding you is to simply tell you, hey, you have the right to do this and the right to do that. Four, the only burden they have is to tell you that you have the right to do this and to do that, which is legal advice, is because only you can enforce your right. And five, if you're not denying and objecting things on the record, you're screwed. Six, if you're not doing your affirmative defense, you're also screwed. Seven, if you're not showing lack of impartial lack lack of partiality, you're also screwed. And also, just as a sidebar, oftentimes when most people get put into prisons as a result of compensating an attorney 70, 80,000 bucks so they could be thrown in jail what they do is they do something called a 2255 which is based on 28 USC subsection 2255 which is a mimicry of the habeas corpus which is a constitutional guarantee and you have to always keep in mind when when it comes to the public courts there's always dichotomy or uh, dialectic, uh, a two-phase aspect of things where the real thing exists and then the, an artificial mimicry of it is created. That artificial aspect basically is controlled in a manner that is administrative to limit the true power that exists in the real one. So the mimicry will be placed in front of you all the time for you to use. And that is a 2255 compared to a habeas corpus. And the habeas corpus is a type of writ. And writs are usually under equitable jurisdiction. And then writs have hierarchies. The habeas corpus is generally considered great writ. And it's not it's it's not an ordinary writ, it's an extraordinary. So the where most people fuck up, for lack of a better term, is the fact that they use 2255 rather than the actual habeas corpus. And even when you begin to read the subsequent aspect, like the 2255, 2256, 2257, 2240-something of 28 USC, it will tell you that, hey, when you do a 2255 petition, make sure that you also do a habeas corpus. Most people, when they do a 2255 petition, they don't even do a habeas corpus. And the general mode of operation with habeas corpus is you're supposed to attach a constitution because that's a constitutional guarantee. You're supposed to do affirmative defense. You're supposed to object to things. And you're supposed to put material evidence of things in. Most people don't do that. And instead, what they do, though, is they come back talking about, hey, I gave this attorney this amount of money and I didn't get the result that I wanted. So because of that, there's an ineffective assistance of counsel that is a verbiage that is used rightfully in your mind you gave that man or that woman 
thousands and thousands and tens of thousands, in some case, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And because of that, you're expecting some magic to happen. Right. It's, it's good. I sympathize with that. The law doesn't give a fuck about that. Neither does that attorney. He just came up and he's going to move to the next one and do the same thing. Simple as that. Because he owes you nothing. An attorney is an officer of the court. When you hire them, you are deemed to be incompetent and everything you say is dead. Simple as that. So here's a guy who did a 2255 motion and 2255 petition and this was the attorney's response. Another thing you ought to do is you're supposed to prove impartiality. I mean, at least if you're going to say that there was an ineffective assistance of counsel, the least you ought to do is at least just bring impartiality and prejudice into the equation. Instead of going on and on about some other crap, just bring the attorney credential of that guy that you hired, which you didn't know about, bring it in as a newfound evidence, bring the attorney credential of the opposing party, and bring the attorney credential of that acting judge. They all, they're all attorneys. How can they be impartial if they're all attorneys? Simple as that. You know, I'm man out. Bring constitutional due process into it. Bring their resumes in it. They love putting that out there. But nonetheless, a guy did a 2255 petition and this was their response to him. And within his 2255, the one and only thing that he bantered over and over and over and babbled on and on is ineffective assistance of counsel advise him to testify, ineffective assistance of counsel to call a witness, and ineffective assistance of counsel uh, to do things regarding what the fuck is going on, whatever it is. Moving on. I'm going to go to the main point. You can read the whole case for yourself. There's a reference. The defendant's case. No, not that, not that, not that. Not that. Okay. They're crash. Interpreting Sidler's habeas petition with the liberality afforded to pro se filing, Sidler appears to challenge his conviction on the basis that his trial counsel made three tactical errors. First, Sidler contends his counsel was ineffective in advising him not to testify in his own defense. Second, Sela contends that his counsel was ineffective for not calling the witness on his behalf. Third, Sela contends his counsel was ineffective for resting at the conclusion of the government's case rather than presenting the affirmative defense, which would have consisted primarily of testimonies, which is bullshit, that's not true. That Sela was only a part, partial owner, blah, blah, blah. So he, this is what he's saying. So applicable law since he didn't do any he didn't put habeas corpus or the mimicry aspect of it the 2255 it's based on the constitution then it's at that point on reasonable for you to bring the law in which is the constitution itself through judicial notice so if you're doing any other thing by the way if there's judicial notice and there's admission of facts or admission of evidence i think that is in rule 36 or 46 but basically Judicial notice, as we all know, is based on the rules of evidence, based on things that are undisputable. That's well known. That's the laws. That's the rules of things, official websites, official web pages. But if you have an unofficial website, 
that somebody did something to you or a text message from your ex that's saying, hey, you don't have to keep paying these child support anymore. I'll tell them to close the case, even though we know that still doesn't matter. They're going to keep charging you anyway. And you're saying, hey, look, she said I don't hold her anymore. We came to a, 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 a mitigated agreement. For that to be admissible, you're going to have to do a demand for admission. So in his case, he was supposed to do a mandatory judicial notice since there's an undisputable law involved in the whole habeas corpus, but he didn't. He didn't enforce any law. He didn't present his contract to the attorney. And, well, he fucked up by hiring an attorney who eventually just took his monies and, you know, locked him up. Now he's coming back saying, hey, there was an ineffective assistance of counsel. A convicted defendant's claim that counsel's assistance was so defective as to require reversal of conviction has two components. First, defendant must show that counsel's performance was deficient. Requirements, this requires showing that counsel made errors so serious that counsel was not functioning as the counsel. What determines what, what the counsel is, if you had presented a contract or if whatever their definition of what they're supposed to do as lawyers and attorneys and what, who their fidelity is, which is not to you, the client, guarantees the defendant by the Sixth Amendment. There you go, Sixth Amendment. He was supposed to bring the Constitution and he didn't do any of that. Second, the defendant must show that the deficient, deficient performance prejudiced the defense. And whatever the attorney did not do actually did, in fact, cause him you screwed up one way or another. Unless a defendant makes both showing, it cannot be said that the conviction resulted from a breakdown in the adversary process that renders the result unreliable. Then they go into details and explaining it. This test presents a high bar for defendant. The Strickland instructs courts to apply a presumption of effective performance. And they go on to explain what a presumption of effective performance is. And then they're telling you this is the only thing an attorney is liable to do for you, performance as in contract, right? And then when they come, you propose something, they accept it, and they have to perform. And that's what's going on here. That's what they're telling you. And this is the presumption of what an effective performance is based on your attorney-client privilege, attorney-client relationship. It goes on to say the standard of Strickland is rigorous. It, no, it's not. It's quite very straightforward. Which basically, if you take nothing out of this whole thing, is the attorney doesn't owe you anything, uh, your rights or yours to enforce. You were supposed to put preponderance of evidence into the case for anything to be effective in any way. And the moment you hire their attorney, you have no say in anything because you give all your powers to the attorney. That's the bottom line to the Strickland rule. But nonetheless, uh, the standard of Strickland is rigorous. And the great majority of habeas petition that alleged constitutionality constitutionally an effective counsel founder on it. Because the test is conjunctive, a habeas petition's failure to test to satisfy either pronged requests require that the challenge to the conviction be rejected, meaning all of them has to be satisfied. As to the first requirement, the petitioner must show that the counsel representation fell below an objective standard of reasonableness. The subjective standard of reasonableness is what are they liable to do? And then no one goes on to explain what are they liable to do. The court must indulge a strong presumption that a counsel's conduct fails within the wide range of reasonable professional assistance. They're liable to what their professional duties are. Actions or omissions by counsel that might be considered sound trial strategy do not constitute ineffective assistance. 
you know what are the, what are they liable to what they're liable to is what they're supposed to be doing in their profession and if what they're supposed to be doing in their profession is based on what has been deemed to be a strategy it doesn't matter what the fuck you say about it so long as they classify it as you know how they can claim trade secrets and not say certain things well they can say it's a it's part of our profession to do this certain things that's what we usually do in our occupation it's well known it's undisputable you know like you bring in a manager judicial fact it's undisputable that is right there it's the constitution everybody knows it, it goes on to say because courts recognize that councils must have wide latitude in making tactical decisions you know what this means when they say wide latitude they can do whatever the hell they want the moment you hire them and there's nothing you can do about it they are your god for this reason strategic choices made after thorough investigation of law and facts relevant to plausible options are virtually unchallengeable there you go right there you can't do anything about it and even strategic choices made after less than complete investigation meaning they don't ever have to put much effort into it so long as they're saying look this is part of what we do in our profession and it's well known and undisputable even strategic choices made less than complete investigation do not amount to ineffective assistance so you want to come here and say hey this guy didn't do the right job because you know Usually when I hire somebody, tell them, hey, fix this for me. I'm going to pay you this. I expect you to fix it because I pay you this amount. With an attorney, a British accreditation registry member, you can pay that man 300,000 bucks. He does what he wants. Why? Because he has wide latitude to make any tactical decision based on, you know, his professional assistance. He's the professional here. You're not. Because if you was, you want to be hiring him. And of course... If you look into other case laws, unless you know you're awarded a state the moment you hire one. So, fuck you, pay me, is what they're telling you. So long as known facts made it reasonable to believe that further investigation was unnecessary. And what are these known facts? These known facts are determined whether you did your affirmative defense, whether you objected on the record, whether you put the applicable laws and the evidence is necessary. And guess what? Even if you hire an attorney, that's because there's different types of attorney. So, it, say at best you found a constitutional attorney, right? There's a very good chance that they're not going to do all that. Some will, but most probably won't. Uh, hey, I'm not, I'm not telling you that, that you shouldn't hire an attorney. Go, go, go hire an attorney. Have your own first-hand experience. But put these things into consideration of what other people have went through so you don't go through it. With respect to the second prong, petitioner must show a reasonable probability that, but for counsel's unprofessional errors, the result of the proceedings would have been different. Meaning, oh, this guy was unprofessional, he didn't do his job. But the first prong was, hey, based on what we're supposed to be doing, we have wide latitude and we can do anything. And you, you have to prove that that's not so. Second one is, hey, this guy was not professional, right? Petitioner must show more than unprofessional performance merely had some conceivable effect. So if you're coming and say, hey, this guy was unprofessional, you still have to prove it. But remember, they have wide latitude to make any decisions because you hire them as the professional in the matter, but you have no say. Reasonable probability is one that undermines confidence in the outcome. If a defendant fails to show prejudice, remember I was telling you about impartiality and prejudice, about their attorney credential? 
in many more ways, but that's just one of them. The court need not consider the objective reasonableness of counsel's action. And we don't give a fuck about what you say. In the context of decisions to testify, the right to testify is personal to the defendant and may not be waived by his attorney over the defendant's objection. And your right is yours to enforce. An attorney cannot do it for you. If you want to object to anything, you got to do it. Regardless of strategic consideration that his lawyer concludes way against such decision, the defendant who wishes to testify must be permitted to do so. You got to do a process right. But only you can do it. The attorneys can't do it for you. The burden of ensuring that the defendant is informed of the nature of existence of the right to testify is a comp component of the effective assistance of counsel. Ding, 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 right there. The only burden they have is to simply tell you that you have the right to one thing or the other. And that's it. Once they do that, they've effectively assisted you as counsel. We'll read that again. The burden of ensuring that the defendant is informed of the nature and existence of the right to testify is a component of the effective assistance of counsel. That is it. The only burden they have to you is to tell you, hey, but you got the right to do this. You got the right to do that. Outside of that, they can do whatever else they want. You've just wasted your money thinking they're going to save you. To establish a claim of ineffective assistance of counsel based on violation of his right to testify, a defendant must satisfy the two-pronged Strickland test, including showing reasonable probability that his testimony would have altered the outcome at trial. How can it alter the outcome at trial? Testimony can be written or oral. If you haven't put any evidence in and haven't objected to anything which an attorney would not do for you, you can't prove this. There you go again, being set up for failure. Section 2255, which by the way is a section of 28 USC. Section 2255 provides that a petitioner can obtain an evidentiary hearing on his claim unless the motion and the files and records of the case conclusively show that the petitioner is entitled to no relief, meaning you've exhausted your remedy. A 2255 motion does not entitle petitioner automatically to a hearing, meaning we don't owe you shit. Why? Because this is a similitude of a habeas corpus. And even then, if you do a habeas corpus, you still have to bring in the law and come right. You have to deny things on record, preserve the record, bring in affirmative defense, bring in your evidence in support of that habeas corpus. What's going to compel us to issue that writ? To tell somebody to come pro provide the law to answer for why they're holding you. So, 2255 does not strip the district court of all discretion, meaning how they feel and what they want to do exercise their common sense meaning it's common sense if you don't turn to 55 it's common sense for us to construe it however we want we're not obligated to it it's not a constitutional right it's a statute that we created and we regulate and because of that we don't have to hear it especially if you're not coming right in particular no hearing need in particular no hearing need be granted when the allegations merely contradict the record or simply conclusory you're saying that man or woman did not effectively assist you? Where is the evidence of that? To warrant a hearing, the motion must set forth specific facts supported by competent evidence. There you go, there you go, evidence. Raising detailed and controverted issues of facts that, if proved at hearing, would entitle the petitioner to relief. 
general and conclusive factual allegations which are based upon mere suspicions and conjecture will not suffice to necessitate a hearing. The record establishes that petitioner does not dispute. There you go. You have to you, you have to deny, object, refuse, dispute anything that might be detrimental to you. On the record, you have to. Now they're using it against you. A trial counsel informed Sella of his right to testify, having discharged their duty by advising Sella right discharge right there. The performance we spoke about up there has been discharged. They're not obligated, they're not bound by it, they're not having a burden. Why? Because all they did was their duty by advising Sella, the one who hired them, that he had the right to testify on his own behalf. That's all they were liable to do. To give you legal advice. That's it. All those paperwork and showing up for court date and giving character witness, which is, by the way, inadmissible, unless you as a defendant are using it against a plaintiff as a defense. But character witness by a third party for you doesn't have a standing, is not admissible. And that's all the attorneys are going to do. They're going to say this guy has a, he has a, is a, he has a very nice teeth, he has a nice wife. He cuts his neighbor's grass for them. He's such a good neighbor. Uh, he graduated this college. He has three children. He makes this much money. That's all the character witness, witness they're going to do for you. They're not going to do any affirmative defense. They're not going to deny anything on record for you. They're not going to preserve any records. They're not going to bring any constitutional claims for you. You do that. Having discharged their duty by advising Salla that he had the right to testify on his own behalf. Right there, that's all they're liable to. They're, they're discharged of their duty. They owe you nothing more. Once they've told you that you have the right to do this, that's it. It was not objectively unreasonable to advise Sella that in the view of trial counsel, taking the stand was not advisable tactical, cho tactical choice. Then once they tell you, hey, you have the right to do it, but we can then say, hey, well, although you have the right to do this, based on our professional standard of what is known that we do in this Field. You shouldn't do that, although you had the right to do it, but you shouldn't do it. Nor does the, and he didn't object to this, he didn't dispute to this, he didn't dispute it. Nor does the petitioner explain how Sella was prejudiced by the decision not to testify. In the course allocution of the defendant during trial, the court confirmed that Sella understood he had the right to testify. Then they used the court record against him. All right, Mr. Seller, do you understand, sire, that you have the right to take the stand and testify in your own defense of the case? Yes, he responded. Now, have you discussed with your attorneys whether you wish to testify in the case? Yes, he responded. Right there, he just waived his due process right to be heard. So they already let you know, we, one, if you do a transfer for the file, we don't even want to hear you in the first place. And we can exercise our discretion not to. But we'll play the good guy and say, hey, look, 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 you fucked up. Because we told you, look, you could be heard once, you could have prevented it, and if not, you could have disputed it. So now this decreases your likelihood to even bring anything because your claims are just frivolous. There's no need for us to hear it, so bye-bye. That's what this is right here. Sella's petition does not dispute that he understood he had the right to testify on his own behalf. Which is the hearsay exemption for a character witness right there right there they're telling you and that he had discussed that decision with his trial 
counsel. In fact, Sunderland's declaration states that prior to the last day of trial, he not only understood that he had the right to testify, but he expected to exercise the right. And during the lunch break prior to Kurt's allocation about the right to testify, Sunderland had further discussions with his counsel about the decision to testify. During those discussions, our counsel informed, now this is quote-unquote what he said, informed Sunderland that there was no need for him to testify because they were certain that we as Warren and there was no need to say anything. That's what he said. They're using his words against him, which is in fact admissible. <laughs> the record is clear that trial counsel advised him of his right to testify, which was all he was required to do to meet his burden of performance as a legal counsel. And nowhere does Salah allege otherwise, and he didn't object to it. Salah's disagreement is instead a disagreement over tactic, which he is not a professional to make such a decision. Salah contends that he had doubt about counsel's recommendation that he not testify, and also contends that he now wishes he had made the opposite choice, but he does not contend that his counsel failed to explain to him that he had the right to take the stand. Which is all that you're liable to do. To tell you that you have the right to do one thing or the other. So long as defense counsel has advised the defendant of his right to testify, defense counsel does not provide ineffective assistance by advocating, even in the strongest terms, that the defendant not exercise the right. Right there. All he or she has to do, that attorney has to do, is tell you, hey, bud, you have the right to do this. But even if it tells you, yeah, you know, you have the right to do it, though. Don't do it. It's a tactic. They're not doing anything wrong. They don't owe you anything. Because they've advised you that you can do it. Because it's your right to enforce. Now, whatever they tell you based on what they do in their everyday legal profession, that's them. But you used to have the right to do it. And it's up to them to not take that right from you, but to actually just inform it. But they can't enforce it for you. Counsel has wide latitude, meaning they're your God. Again, they're using this word. They're letting you know, look, the moment you hire them, you have no saying in anything. That attorney runs you and your life. They're using this word wide latitude as a qualifying phrase for a very good reason in making tactical decisions. And where, as here, such decisions are made after a thorough investigation of law and facts. Those decisions are virtually unchallengeable. You can't say anything else. But what are the law and facts that's thoroughly investigated? The only law and facts that thoroughly investigated when attorneys are involved are the things that's against you. Because an attorney is not going to put any law and facts that's benefiting you. So what's on the record is only what's going to be observed when you do any petition or appeal, whatever it is you're doing. Uh, let's move down. So he makes basically the same contentions and they basically shut it down. So if it wasn't clear before that attorneys owe you nothing and once they screw you over, you can't come back and say, well, because I gave this guy amount I felt entitled so he should have done this for me so he didn't do it properly in your mind you thinking you gave him this large sums of monies 
so he was supposed to do something for you and he didn't so now you can come back and talk about well he didn't assist me legally properly in effective assistance of counsel wrong he doesn't owe you anything you can pay him 20 billion dollars all he's liable to do is tell you hey you got the right to do this but now since there are more bonds involved and I get commissions for it and whatnot um don't do this okay so that you know they're not gonna tell you that but they're just gonna give you legal advice based on their standard of profession whatever the case may be if you're trying to do a habeas corpus or any similar to the habeas corpus do your best a favor not bring ineffective assistance of counsel in the case because that man or woman is simply doing their job which is to hold fiddle to the British accreditation register member membership and to basically tell you hey but um you have the right to do this thing over here but if you want you can do this that's all don't blame him it's your fault because it's your right and it's your obligation for for you to know it and to enforce it just a little for thought.